0: If you'd like to, you can open your Bible, the Pew Bible. This will be on page 1012. It's also on the screen. I'm reading Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands god did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said we are his offspring therefore since we're god's offspring we should not think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. That ends the reading. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Dave and I'm continuing our series on Paul. We've been looking at his life and we started off talking about how Paul was very religious. So religious that he actually was, you know, he came out of Judaism and he actually was so religious he was persecuting the early people of the church. He was chasing them down. He was arresting them. He even put some of them to death. And so, um, you know, Paul then has this experience on the road to Damascus as he's going to arrest some more Christians, more followers of the way. And he's transformed. And he becomes uh, arguably, probably not even arguably, the most powerful missionary force in the world. He plants most of the early churches, he uh, writes a little bit over half of a New Testament of our Bible in letters to those churches to kind of keep him going and spur him on. And so we've been looking at his life and some of his teachings, and, and now we're at a section where we're looking at um, different parts of his missionary journey. And the one thing that I have always um, loved about Paul is that everywhere he goes, he sort of takes a different approach. And he caters his approach to his audience. So, you know, I'm, I'm down here on the floor this morning because I like to be close to the people, and you guys keep moving further and further back. So eventually, I'll preach mid-aisle if you keep going. I mean, there's nowhere further back to go, right? So, um, but I like, I like being, being closer. I feel more connected. So I'm going to keep moving further down. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but Paul does that. He connects with his audience in different ways. Last week, we looked at how he was speaking to a largely Jewish audience and so what he did is he started off by, he went through the history of the Jewish people. And he illustrated God's faithfulness through the different times. And then at the very end, he turns into this kind of talk about where he says, okay, and now there's the person of Jesus. And so when Paul's in Athens, he looks around and he's, he's distressed as he gets there because everywhere he looks, he sees idols. And he sees all these statues and idols and, and um, the Greeks had that. In their worship, right? They had all different aspects to the worship. In fact, Paul even sees one altar and it says it's to an unknown God. So Paul goes and he wants to take this, this, the religiousness of the people, and help them understand how to turn it into a relationship with the one true God. I've abandoned my clicker. Excuse me for a moment. I didn't think through this plan completely. And now we can continue. So Paul takes this this religiousness of the people and all these idols, and he begins to kind of help them see a transition. And so Paul does this in a variety of ways, and so I want to walk through the text and talk about how Paul takes their religion and helps to turn it into a relationship with God, but even more importantly, the second half of our sermon today, I want us to look at what that means for us. Because it's one thing to look at this book and read it and understand it and learn from it, right? But it's a whole other thing to take what we've learned and do something with it. And so I think that's the important part of any sermon and message is, so what? I've learned this truth about God, I've learned this truth about myself, now what am I going to do with it? And so, the first thing that Paul... Sort of discusses with the Athenians as he's, as he's there, as he's in the Areopagus, and he's talking to all the people, and he sees all the idols around as he says, Listen, you have this statue, this altar to an unknown God, but God is knowable. He's not unknown. In there we go. People of Athens, in verse 22 and 23, he says this I see in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul sees this altar, and he he recognizes all of the statues and idols around, and he says, listen, the things that you are worshiping that you don't even know about, let me tell you about. About. Let me tell you about this unknown God. So he, he meets them where they're at, so to speak. And Paul helps describe to them that God is not unknown, but he's knowable. And God wants more than just our religious practice. God wants a relationship with us. The second thing that, that Paul sort of connects to is he says, listen, God is involved. He's not absent. In, in, in Greek uh, poetry and arts, they had this saying, and so, so Paul actually uses this actual saying that they have, and in verse 28 he says, in him, meaning God, we live and move and have our being. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, um, the, the Greeks had this, this sort of concept of God or, or God's as these idols, and the idols were in control of of one aspect of life. So there was a god of the sun, there was a god of war, there was a god of love, right? And they were they were distant and not involved. And Paul says, "No, God is the opposite of that. God is actively involved in our life, even to the very our very being, our very breath, our very movements in life." come from God. And so he's trying to take this impersonal aspect, and he's making it very personal, very involved. Anyone ever do any gardening? A few of you, right? Anyone successfully keep things alive? Now wait, some of you raised your hand, and you didn't garden. What are you keeping alive? Yourself? Uh, Yeah, good job. All right. Right? And so when you garden, right? Imagine... You know, I'm not much of a gardener, but I've tried, you know, I'm not very good at it. Things die under my care. But anyways, um, you, you start off, right, and you pick your seed and you plant it and you put soil and you got water and you got you to gotta care for it and tend it, right? You can't just put the seed down and then walk away and it's done, right? And the Greeks had sort of that approach to religion. It's like, here, God has done this. They actually believed God created the world, but now he's distant, and involved. And Paul is saying, no, it's the opposite. It's like gardening. It's God is actively involved. If you want to be good at gardening, you've got to dig in. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to be involved. You have to get rid of the weeds, and there's other things you have to do. I don't know what they are, but you've got to do things. And Paul is, Paul is talking to the Athenians, and he's helping them understand that God is, in fact, very involved, very personal. And then he goes on to say that God is jealous not indifferent. Now, the word jealous has a negative connotation to all of us, because jealousy is bad, right? You don't want to be jealous, but God describes himself, actually, as a jealous God. Verse 29 30 says this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made from human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And when God talks about himself as being a jealous God, um, it occurs actually several places in scripture. What he's talking about is that he wants to be our number one priority, right? What's the first commandment? I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, right? God wants to be first. He is a jealous God. He wants to be first in our hearts and minds, in our lives, the very, one of the very first times he, he talks about being a jealous God is, is when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, right? Moses goes on the Mount Sinai, and he meets with God, and he gets what? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. I just said it. You should remember. All right. And he gets the Ten Commandments, and as he comes down, what happens? They're already breaking them. They've got a golden calf there that they've made that they're worshiping. Because I guess they got bored while Moses was gone. And so Moses has a fit of righteous anger and he throws the Ten Commandments and he breaks them over the calf. And he goes up and he gets more. But God, when he, God talks about that, he says he's a jealous God. He wants our love and affection. He wants our lives. And so Paul is, he's trying to take this, this religious nature of the Athenians and turn it around and help them to understand that God is personal, that God is involved, that God wants a relationship with him, which would have been far different from their attitude before. And what happens is some of the Athenians begin to turn and worship the one true God. So for you and I today, this is a great story, and it's great to hear how Paul is this excellent missionary. But what does this, what does this mean for you and I today? Well, I, I think that we... Can be sometimes a little bit like the Athenians. We can get caught up in the religious nature of our relationship with God and not the personal side. And so I think we can we can learn from these three principles that Paul is is teaching. Number one, God is knowable, and we should strive to know Him well. Right? God is not this impersonal force that created us and left us alone, God is knowable. And we all, being made in God's image, we are created with this desire to love and to be loved, to know and to be known. There was actually an a internet meme that went around, went kind of viral for a while, and um, it had a quote in it, and the, the a quote, when I was preparing this sermon, I remembered that quote, but I'd never really heard the story, and the quote actually comes out of a story, and, and it helps it make more sense if I tell you this story, but it's written in a story, and in this story, a man has a dream. And in his dream, there's an invention, and the invention is a, a spiral staircase, right? But it's, it's a spiral staircase that goes down, and what happens is, as you walk on the spiral staircase, you learn everything that anyone has ever thought or said about you in life. Right? But, but there's one interesting catch. At the, at the top, when you start the spiral staircase, you have to hear all the worst things that people thought about you or said about you before you get to the bottom where you hear the very best things. Right? Who would walk down the staircase? Oh, one person. Susan's brave. All right. Right? And so the, the statement was this. This is what the meme was. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. So in other words, if if we want to receive love, we have to really, to to have it be real, authentic, true love, we have to be known. And here's the beautiful thing. See, God knows all of the worst stuff about you. The stuff that you wouldn't want flashing on the screen right now. God knows all of that. The worst things you've ever thought, the worst things you've ever done, God already knows. And guess what? He loves you desperately anyways. And so just as God knows us and loves us, we have to strive to know God. He gave us this book, right? This book that's all about his incredible grace and love for us and as we read it and study it and we know and learn about God, what happens is the more we know about God, the more we're going to love him. It's, it's sort of the opposite of humans, right? You get to know someone, right? Like you, you, you get married and you stand up in a church and you, you can you know, confess before everyone in God that you love this person. And what happens, right? Over time, life happens. And you might grow to love that person More and more and more, hopefully, right? That's the ideal. But also you realize more and more and more how annoying that person is. That's human nature. And so as you as you get to learn and know that person, right? Real true love, real grace is that you know the annoying things about this person, you love them, anyways. But the beautiful thing about getting to know God is God doesn't have any of that. Everything about God is good. And so when Paul talks to the Athenians, he's saying, listen, this God wants to know you in an intimate way. And he wants to be known by you as well. We also learn that God is involved, right? If God is involved, then we need to get busy doing his work. If God is actively involved in our our lives, then we should do something about it. We should get involved in what he is already working on. When you walk out today, I've said this many times, as you walk out, if you look up, there's a, there's a little, I don't even know what that thing's called, but it, it, it's, a, it's on a mirror. And there's this saying, and it says, attempt great things for God. And it's, it's been there for a long time. It's, it's actually part of, of a longer quote by a man named John Haggai, And I've I've shared the longer quote here in church before, but the longer quote is, attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. In other words, dream so big for God, do things so big for God that if he doesn't show up and get involved, it's gonna fail. And that quote actually comes from John Haggai's own experience. As, As he was a young man, He heard a statistic that 40% of the world, of the known world, had never heard the gospel, had never heard of Jesus Christ. And so John Haggai felt convicted, and he said, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can to end that. But that's a big thing, right? Like, no one can accomplish that. And so he said, well, I believe God calls us to attempt something so great for him then it's doomed to fail unless he's in it. And so he started the Haggai Institute, and the Haggai Institute is, is one of the leading missionary organizations in the world, and it, it seeks to do just that. And the, them and the work of a lot of other people across the world has is, is really helped, right? Because that number used to be 40%. Most recent statistics think it's about 18 or 19% of the world has never heard of the gospel now. And what he does is he goes to these, these places and a lot of them are amongst indigenous peoples and he identifies um, one or two people that are already there and that know and love Jesus. And he trains them and equips them and empowers them and he he has something called the the Haggai Leadership Institute and he sends people through this and to this day, 141,000 people across the world have graduated from the Haggai Leadership Institute and are working to spread the gospel in their local cultures. It's amazing. Amazing because he was willing to do something that everyone would have said, you can never do it. There's no chance you can make a dent in that. But he attempted something because God is already at work. It's like if you've ever... Someone just walked and is looking up. All right. Pay attention to a little bit of the sermon. All right. So how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? All right. So you'll get this illustration. So I love the part when it says Aslan is on the prowl. Right? Aslan is the lion... Uh, figure in this book and he represents God and it says Aslan is on the prowl meaning God is at work God is going through the world and he's he's doing things and so if God is involved we need to get busy and join him in the work that he's doing Paul's final point to the Athenians is that God is jealous and so if God is jealous what that means for us today is that we we should put him first In our lives. God wants to be our number one priority. He wants to be the most important thing. And it's easy. As we go through life, it's easy to sort of get distracted. And lose that first priority, right? Happens. Happens to all of us. There's a a story told of um, a lady. And uh, the lady was... She was at a stage in her life where she was kind of lonely and she wanted some companionship. So she went to a pet store and she was looking for some sort of a pet to, to keep her company. And, and she just, in the pet store, she saw this amazing parrot. And the parrot was like great at talking and it kept just talking. And hello, how are you? Ah, you're pretty. Ah. You know? And she's like, well, if someone will tell me I'm pretty every day, I gotta have this parrot, right? And so she gets the parrot, and um, she gets the, you know, the cage and the supplies and everything. She goes, and she gets home, and, and uh, she comes back the next day. And the pet store owner's like wondering, I wonder what, what, what she's doing here. And she's like, hey, the parrot won't talk. What's wrong? And uh, the pet store owner says, well, um, maybe you should get a mirror. Parrots love mirrors. And sometimes they'll see themselves in the mirror, and they'll get excited. And um, same thing happens to Pastor Shane. But... Um, right? The, they'll see themselves in the mirror and then they'll start talking. And so she gets the mirror, she buys the mirror and she brings it home, puts it in the cage and still nothing. So she shows up the next day at the pet store again and, and uh, the pet store is like, hey, maybe, uh, maybe try getting a ladder. Parrots love to climb little ladders. So she buys a ladder and, and uh, puts it in the cage and same thing, nothing from the parrot. And so the pet store owner's like, "Hey, well, uh, maybe you can try this. There's this little, these little bells, and you can hang the little bells, and they ring the bells, and it makes noise, and then that might spur them on to talk, and you know, keep talking to the parrot. Maybe it'll talk back." And so finally, this keeps going on, and she keeps buying more and more stuff for the parrot, and and finally, she comes back after like six days, and she's like, "The parrot is dead." And the pet store owner's like, "Man, I mean." Wh- i got to ask you, did it ever say anything before it died? And she's like, well, actually, it did. Right before it died, it said, ah, doesn't the pet store sell food? Right? You, you get it? Doesn't the pet store sell food? All right, thank you. And, and it, it's, it's a joke, and it's, it's not even a good joke, apparently, but... um. But the idea is, right, we have to put first things first. And God says he wants to be first in our lives. And so we've got to make him the priority. Other things creep in, and they're not bad things, right? But life happens, and we, we, all of a sudden, we sort of, we sort of put God aside. And we forget about him. We stick him up on the shelf. And we go on with our life. And God says, no, I want to be, I'm a jealous God. I want to be your number one priority. And so when we look at this sermon that the Apostle Paul gave to the Athenians so many years ago, right, we're in different situations, different circumstances. Most of you don't have idols laying around, gold and silver and stone that you're worshiping at home. But we all can learn from what Paul teaches the Athenians. We can all learn that God is a personal God. He wants to be involved in our lives. He is involved in our lives. He wants to be known, and he knows us and loves us desperately. And he wants to be your first priority. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can open this book. And we can read it and study it and we can learn from it. We can learn about you. We can learn your heart. And most importantly, God, we we learn how desperately you love us. It's on every page of this book. So Father God, I pray that we as a people, we would embrace your love. And that we would take that love and that we would share it with the world. Love is why we're here. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. Your precious holy name we pray. Amen.